This episode of No Wrong Answers is brought to you by the Kauffman Foundation, which invests in educators and lifts up the Kansas City region and is dedicated to learning together to improve educational and economic success. Learn more at Kauffman.org. Most kids in America still can't name slavery as the primary cause of the Civil War. And our teachers say the problems with the way we teach slavery goes even deeper than that. It's time to get uncomfortable. Plus, school counselors on average have caseloads approaching 500 students. 500 students? One counselor says there's not enough time in the day. And our teachers dole out advice in a new segment. Plus, as always, kids these days on this episode of the No Wrong Answers podcast. Welcome to No Wrong Answers, the weekly podcast that gives you a teacherly take on the world. I'm your host, Kyle Palmer. I'm a former teacher turned journalist, and I'm joined, as always, by a group of hardworking teachers who are ready to talk. So let's introduce them. Maddie Burkemper, what do you teach? I teach all of fifth grade. All of fifth grade. Not all the... Never mind. (laughs) (laughs) All Every subject (laughs) in fifth grade. Yep. (laughs) Lou Ann Fox, what do you teach? High school English. And Bakari Uku'u. No longer a teacher, but in administration. What do you do in education? Middle school vice principal. All three of them are educators at public schools in the Kansas City metro area. Well, let's get to it. Our first topic, let's talk about slavery. Specifically, how American schools teach it and American students learn about it or don't learn about it. A new report from the Southern Poverty Law Center's Teaching Tolerance Project entitled Teaching Hard History, American Slavery concludes that schools are coming up well short in presenting students with a thorough and even accurate portrayal of slavery's place in American history. The authors of this report last year surveyed some 1,000 American high school students, and their findings are a bit distressing. Students appear to have a largely superficial and confused view of the impact slavery has had on American history. Most notably, slavery's central role in sparking the Civil War is largely misunderstood. This report shows just 8%, 8% of high schoolers surveyed identified slavery as the central cause of the Civil War. Nearly 50% blamed taxes on imported goods, which led the report's authors to conclude maybe students were mixing up the Civil War with the American Revolution. That's still not very encouraging. At the same time, this report shows teachers... Uh, say they feel a lack of support in teaching about slavery. An overwhelming majority of teachers surveyed by the report's authors agree with the idea that teaching slavery is essential to understanding American history, but less than half of them agree with the idea that the textbooks they use do a good job of covering slavery, and a significant proportion, nearly 40%, said their district provides little to no support in teaching about slavery. And then more systematically, the report concludes that textbooks and state standards are largely inadequate in outlining key points about slavery, The textbooks the authors review typically skip over covering the daily lived reality of slaves in America, ignore the profit motive behind slavery, and routinely miss connecting the legacy of slavery to modern-day American society and inequalities that persist today. Likewise, the authors conclude that the 15 state standards they reviewed, including Kansas among the group, suffered many of the same problems as the authors say these standards are, in a word, timid. Uh, What are your reactions and feelings to this SPLC teaching tolerance report? How does it make you feel as educators? I'm not surprised. I wouldn't even limit it just to the enslavement of African people in America as a difficult topic in history that we don't cover effectively. I think it's any of our challenging pieces of history that we don't cover effectively because it disrupts the sanitized version of American history that we like to really glorify 
our founding, and we like to glorify uh, our his- our history. And so, anytime we have these challenging pieces of history, we tend to just either erase them altogether or just um, minimize them um, so that we don't have to engage in that difficult conversation. So I'm not surprised by these findings at all. It made me think about the textbook that I used as a fourth grade teacher. In a portion of the book, it focused on, well, slavery's over, like the institution of slavery is over. And that was a really uncomfortable portion to read. And ultimately, after my first year teaching, I was like, we're going to skip that paragraph because that's not, I don't, like I, that's not true. Like that's that institution is still existing in so many of our structures today. And for students to leave my classroom thinking, oh, the institution of slavery is over, especially when I'm teaching. Like part of my classroom is black students. So if you leave my classroom thinking, oh, that institution is gone, and then you're going to go out into our world thinking, I'm not impacted by that anymore. Like, that's not... And when you act like the institution of slavery is over, it really... I think it blocks students. And, like, for me as a student, going through our public education system, it blocked me from connecting slavery to things that I later learned about, like, even the women's women's rights movement. In teaching that, it, it doesn't talk about how that movement... That that movement didn't impact all American women, it primarily helped white women. If we act like it's all the way over and that it's like we're going to it's like we're going to wrap that up with a bow and we're going to move on to our right, next as if era. Right, we learned our lesson and we reconciled right. the Like and then Harriet um, Tubman came and mm-hmm. she helped rescue everyone and now it's over and we can tie that and move on. It it makes students think, "Oh, well, housing must be equitable now because slavery's over." And it isn't. So to me, that's when the textbook actually is kind of put to the side because it doesn't effectively um, educate our students, particularly in the students in which I taught as a classroom teacher, um, which were predominantly African-American. I felt it was necessary that we heard from multiple perspectives of enslaved Africans and that it was important that they knew that slavery didn't just stop because white men all of a sudden said, oh, now we recognize the fallacy of our ways, but that because people were showing resilience even in and, and pushing back against so that inter- structure. So to interrupt, sorry, mm-hmm. uh, you, you put outside the textbook, so what's, what, uh, what sources, what text did you use? I mean, there's a variety of, uh, of texts. I know we use a lot of PBS, um, have a lot of resources around uh, historical perspectives. We watch a lot of YouTube videos that um, really highlight missing pieces of history. Um, coming from an African-centered school, which is at the time I was teaching, um, we have a whole section dedicated to Africans before enslavement. So we talk about um, that history before then, and we talk about the Gullah, tri- uh, the Gullah people in South Carolina and how they were already pushing back against the institution of slavery. Um, and so we talk a lot about just different portion- portions of history when we bring in other artifacts and other articles that help highlight that. Uh, Luann, Maddie, uh, how these issues come into class and, and how do you approach and, and, and what do you, you know, be, assess your own comfort level with these issues? I need to access enough awareness and like bravery within myself to be like, this is not okay. And I don't care if I'm going to make waves with my other colleagues well, who are going to feel uncomfortable when I make a statement like well, the would, institution imagine... of slavery still exists. That makes yeah. people feel uncomfortable. And I know that when students go home and communicate that to their parents, that might make their parents feel uncomfortable. And then the parents are going to call the principal and what's the principal. So it's, it's less of a, 
the sources don't exist or I don't have permission from my principal, but it's honestly more of a like doing the right thing. Like you have to you have to do the right thing, which is the textbook doesn't cut it. We all know that the textbook doesn't cut it. I don't care if people are going to react to me verbally in a negative way. You got to do what you got to so do. You, and you're, you know? you're speaking from a very particular perspective of a white teacher teaching white students or, or a, a student body that is made up of partly, at least partly white students. I think I'm, teach, I'm like speaking from the perspective of a white teacher who went through the curriculum and none of my teachers made those waves. And so I'm, I'm coming out of that knowing, well, that's how I was taught. I think the and fact so that I need to I need to disrupt like I need to disrupt and do it doesn't the, the very fact that you're having that conversation with yourself though doesn't doesn't that I mean a, a, applause applause to you to on a certain extent but also that's I, I, not I, enough but like I would but I would say it's that. probably a fairly rare <laughs> thing well, right that's, that, I mean it it, it is like I want to resist like any sort of like good for me because like mm-hmm. me talking about it and like also it doesn't matter if. The, my class is 100% white or if my class is 100% African-American or if I have um, mixed races in my class because everyone, if you're mm-hmm. living in America, every single class needs to be exposed. Like I went to an all-white Catholic grade school and I still should have been exposed to that. I should have especially been exposed to that because I am the one with the privilege right now. So like... If I'm don't if I'm not made aware of this, how are we ever going to come together as a country to impact systematic change? Like if if no one is disrupting anything, nothing nothing's going to get better for anyone. I think and, the fact you know, that we have to the fact that it's even framed as this is creating a wave or disrupting to teach yeah. a more accurate and a more a well-rounded understanding of American history, that is in and of itself problematic because it goes back to that we've normalized and we made the expectation on this sanitized version of American history Mm -hmm. so that when we say that we're willing to bring in other perspectives um, and more accurate perspectives and that becomes a wave or that becomes a disruption. You're you're breaking against the Right, that that in and of itself is problematic. But if my student went home and said, oh, Ms. Burkhamper taught me about Malcolm X today, they'd be like, what? What? (laughs) And they'd be like, why Why are you learning about the Black Panthers? Like, that was a terrorist group. I'm like, that was have not you had, have a you had, terrorist have group. Have you had that experience? Okay, that, and see, this is where we go. We circle back because I haven't. You see what I'm saying here? Like, it's it sounds such, like you're worried that would happen. That Yes. Like, deep down in my gut, I'm like, oh, that's that's like that conversation is scary to me. And so I think that that's, that's like the, the shame that I need to like, okay, it's like, I get that you feel that way, but that does not excuse me from having these conversations in my classroom. And so my first year, I didn't make waves. And then my second year teaching, I was like, I can't do this anymore. Like, I can't. I'm so implicit that if I keep doing that, it's I think not. For me, this conversation is highlighting you know, this this even greater issue. And um, I mean, given that it's Black History Month, I guess it's an opportune moment. But I feel like the fact that we talk about the enslavement of Africans in America that took place over 400 years ago, and now when we, in that conversation, we jump to like a Malcolm X or Martin Luther King, uh-huh. which is centuries later, that just shows this void and that we don't have enough understanding of the richness and the fullness of Africans' history in America because we, we, we can't even get from slavery to um, civil rights without 
like there's just this automatic flash forward of we went from slavery to civil rights exactly. to to black power movement and now all of a sudden we're in today's society and it's like there's a lot of richness that took place before Martin ever got up and delivered I Have a Dream mm-hmm. before we militarized and terrorized uh, Malcolm X's image and so it's like there's so many other people we should be able to reference readily that have impacted American culture and have impacted African Americans in, in such a dynamic way that we don't because we do not teach black history mm-hmm. effectively at all which means that we're not teaching American American history well, effectively at all. You condense it to a month. What do yeah. you? Yeah. Luann, I want to get you in here. You teach high school students. You teach literature. I do. These issues have come <laughs> up, I mean, tangentially or central to your curriculum based on what you're te- you know, based on the works you're teaching. Uh, well, how, do you, I, how do your students I teach take language, yeah. actually, as opposed to literature, oh, but yeah. I would like to speak about literature in just a second. But I teach a language course, a language and composition course, which I've done for a number of years, and it's um, an, an advanced course for high schoolers. So I'm teaching upperclassmen, and so, for instance, um, I will bring to my students the speech of Alfred Green, who uh, was an African American individual who tried to mobilize a lot of other black troops to fight for the Union Army just months before the end of. The Civil War. So how does one black man encourage a whole group of other black men to go fight for a country that doesn't care about them? And how does he do that in five paragraphs? And what are the moves that he has to make to actually make that happen? That's where I focus, right? So the discussion of the time period obviously will come up. Um, and and that's, that's my that's my focus as a, as a classroom teacher, though. So I don't shy away from Lincoln's second inaugural. And I talk about that famous speech. Um, I like to talk about the way Lincoln uses language to talk about the North and the South when he doesn't blame uh, the South. I mean, that that's very calculated, um, that that's meant for a particular effect. So I try to get away from the morals of that as much as I want to talk about, like, how does language accomplish its purpose, fully understanding that that happens in time. I want to uh, get back to the part of the conversation um, that uh, Maddie was bringing up earlier, just this idea of of trying to, I think, fight larger systemic forces and even your own internal uh, discomfort and fear and anxiety uh, in dealing with slavery. So this Southern Poverty Law Center report also surveyed teachers, and they had teachers give open-ended responses about responses about certain questions. And I just want to read what one teacher said um, in, in talking about the challenges of teaching slavery accurately in class. And this was a teacher from Massachusetts. Uh, she said, when you bring up racism, kids start getting really defensive, thinking that they're to blame. To feel comfortable, you need to have a really good classroom climate where students feel that they're not being blamed for what happened in the American past, where they don't feel shame about it. It, um, it is 100% not their fault that there is racism in this country, but it will be their fault if they don't do anything about it in the next 20 years. Uh, so that was a Massachusetts teacher. Do you, do you find that you, you do get pushback from kids or that that is, that that is – playing into your calculus about how you present materials, how um, kids and families respond. Like, do I hold back curriculum because I'm worried that it's going to implicate my students as being racist? Yes. Like, that is an anxiety that I have. Mm -hmm. Like, portion of my population that is white is going to be made to feel uncomfortable because I'm like, I'm not... I'm not going to uphold this with you anymore. 
when they said that you have to have a classroom climate that feels comfortable with it. I think that that comfort needs to start with me feeling comfortable with like my own role in American history. And yeah. I would and I would say, but I, I will say I don't think there's a lot of teachers that are in your place mentally at all. You know what I'm saying? At all. So I mean, so I th- and, and and I know you don't want to yeah. be. I don't know. I know you don't want to be patted on the back for that. And so I'm not patting you on the back. But I, I will say <laughs> that I, I think, you know, and and to Luann's point, I think there are a lot mm-hmm. of history teachers and literature teachers out there who are relying on the textbook um, or are relying yeah. on the state standards that this report says is are so lacking. And don't have the um, are not having that conversation internally with themselves about what they do and don't know. Um, I mean, do you do you guys agree? I do, but I want to go back to your point earlier around this notion of like shame, and that this is part of the reason why we don't address these um, varied perspectives in our classroom. And I think that's actually part of the problem. I think we should feel shame. We should, and that shame should want us to learn and educate ourselves about it, so we don't continue to repeat it. And I think the fact that we don't address them effectively is part of the reason why we still see the perpetuation of oppression in our system today, because we think that it's not existent. We think that when this is why we get why some people get so combative, so combative when you talk about white privilege, when you talk about white supremacy, because they've been taught that those things are not real. Those things don't exist because we've learned our lessons from enslavement. We learned our lessons from uh, uh, segregation. We learned our lessons from the civil rights movement. We've moved forward in, in this society. So why are we bringing this up? It's not my fault. And I don't think that the conversation is that it's white folks' fault that are here today, but it is white folks' fault and black folks' fault and, and Latino folks' fault if we're not actively working against a system that continues to oppress mm-hmm. anybody. And so I think that if we're not willing to engage in these tough conversations, then we are just continuing to let the status quo be the status quo. And so if we don't operate from this place of shame, shame is what stops us from repeating out those same mistakes. That guilt is what makes us want to learn and do differently. And if we continue to avoid that shame and avoid that guilt, then we continue to perpetuate the same oppression that that we're talking about now. And I think there's definitely a segment of teachers who are like, I'm going to keep it, play it safe. I don't want to be on anyone's headlines. I don't want to have to have these conversations with parents. So here's the textbook says, here's what I'm going to teach. And there's those others who are like, we live in a world where I can't afford to not teach what's real for my students. I can't, I can not, I can no longer continue to uphold the status quo because the status quo has gotten us where we are today. So I definitely think that there's this bifurcation of educators um, across the spectrum, but I think most of them land on the, I'm going to play it safe personally. I mean, from Classrooms that I've observed in and outside of my building, I definitely think most people are playing it safe right now. What does that look like? Teaching the textbook. Really? Still? Mm-hmm. I think most people are teaching the textbook. That's why only 8% of our kids know that slavery was a central cause of the Civil War. <laughs> well, I hate to leave it there. <laughs> that's <laughs> where it is. Might, that's, that's where it is, yeah. That's where we need to leave it so in that way people... That's where it is so that we can't be... We don't want to tie it up with a bow here in this room, right? No bows. So no bows. Our podcast today is sponsored by the Kauffman Foundation, learning together with families, educators, entrepreneurs, and innovators to develop quality education that prepares all of Kansas City students for the future of learning and work. Join the conversation by visiting Kauffman.org or on Twitter at KauffmanFDN. Next, let's talk about counselors. How many counselors does your school have? There's a good chance the answer is not enough. School counselors are extremely overloaded. How overloaded? 
A newly published report from the National Association for College Admission Counseling and the American School Counselor Association puts a number on it. The average student-to-counselor ratio in the U.S. is 482 to 1. Now, to be clear, the information in this new report was actually compiled back in the 2014-15 school year. Those are the most recent numbers. And that 482 to 1 figure is a slight increase from the last time such caseload numbers were tabulated. The ratio was still a very high 479 to 1 in the 2004-2005 school year. So these extremely high student-to-counselor ratios have been a persistent problem for some time. And those unbalanced ratios have stayed relatively flat from year to year over that decade. Still, this most recent report was meant to, as its authors say in the overview, quote, shed light on the often unmanageable caseloads public school counselors must serve. The report also notes that research demonstrates that access to a school counselor can make a significant difference in students' prospects for graduation and retention in their college choice and even if they pursue college after high school at all. To realize such results, school counselors must operate in an environment free of overwhelmingly large student caseloads, the report concludes. The clear implication being that under their current strain, those things cannot happen as effectively as they otherwise might. The report's authors recommend a student-to-counselor ratio of 250 to 1, and note that only three states right now, New Hampshire, Vermont, and Wyoming, currently meet that bar. Well, we have our teachers here, but we also thought we might need some expert input on this particular topic, so we've invited in a school counselor. His name is Stu Keltner, and he's actually a counselor at the school that our own Luann works at, uh, at a high school here in the Kansas City area. Stu, thank you for joining us. Hey, it's good to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, so how do... How does having more kids affect the job you're supposed to be doing? Like, like, give me a real sense logistically about how your day is impacted if you have, you know, for instance, at your old school, 750 kids to look after. You know, uh, just having a supportive staff is very important and being able to communicate uh, what the goals are with your staff. Uh, you know, it was at times, you know, my just my response time to a kind of a normal parent inquiry, you know, at, at times would be a little more delayed than I li- would like for it to have been. Um, you know, also just uh, on any given day, uh, you, you might have a situation that can take several hours out of your out of your morning or afternoon and uh, basically trying to stay in the moment, stay present, you know, when you know you have other pending items. Yeah, so, but you, so when you say an issue will, t- will take up an hour or two of your time on, a, on any given morning, you're talking about like a student has an issue, a student has a, a problem or a dilemma, or they're facing um, some sort of maybe even a mental health crisis that you, need to, uh, that you need to really devote your time to. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, uh, kids lead complicated lives. You know, it seems like it's a lot, a lot more complicated than even a few years ago. You know, just navigating the social landscape of a middle school or a high school uh, is really difficult for, for kids. And some of those things take time. You know, it's, you can't have a five-minute discussion and, and, uh, and, and analyze the context that student's coming from. So, you know, taking that, it takes time to uh, really, especially if it's, if it's a, you know, a situation that's pretty heavy and pretty difficult for a kid. You just need, you need time. Yeah. So I don't think it's any secret that you, um, as counselors, you, you see more students nowadays um, with more issues than you have before. One of the mm-hmm. questions I'm wondering is, is uh, the issues that the students are bringing to, I mean, is there a range of them? Or can you speak to something that is like driving more students to ha- seek more counselor intervention and help than maybe over the last five years or previous? You know, I think that the just cumulative uh, level of anxiety across 
building, I think, has risen. You know, I don't know if it's due to the, some of the uh, just our access to technology. Um, also, I think, uh, you know, just students maybe having unreasonable expectations. I mean, there's also just a ton of information even to sift through. Um, you know, with, with your let's talk about if your kid's talking about, if he's thinking about going to post-secondary, just the amount of options out there and the amount of careers out there with uh, it, it narrowing focus down has definitely uh, – is definitely something I do a, a lot. So do you see kids more, I don't know, hopeless today, thinking about their futures than, say, maybe they would have been years ago? Yeah, I, I do get some of that at times. But, uh, yeah, when you sit down with them, um, a lot of times it's like, you know, there's that general, like, I lost type experience. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think to some degree, you uh, uh, what I do is we just start, you know, prioritizing items and making goals. And, uh, and then I check back in with them a few days later and, if we're making some progress, and if not, we adjust the plan, and we just keep trying to move forward. Because I think, uh, you know, I mean, the, the, the saying that you know I, that, that I think everybody's heard is, you know, progress equals happiness, right? If you're progressing and you feel like you're you're making some progress, obviously you're going to be a little happier. You're going to you're going to feel a little more upbeat, feel better about the direction you're headed. Stu, final question. So you said currently your uh, ratio of students is roughly. 450 or so, which is which is below the, the average of 482 quoted in this survey. But uh, this survey suggests a ratio of 250 to 1. So how would your life and your work be different if you had 250 students as opposed to 450 students? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just the level of depth, you know, like just in maybe just the rapport you could build with students would obviously be greater. You know, you would uh, you'd be able to visit with them a little longer. You'd be able to get to know their stories uh, on a deeper level. You'd uh, obviously have, I think in a lot of ways too, you, you would build better rapport with parents because you would have more time to, uh, you know, uh, address an issue or communicate with them in email, whatever it is. Obviously, you just have a little bit more blocks of time potentially to uh, get that personalized feel with parents as well. You know, really just, just giving that, that personalization, you know, and just didn't really get to know kids' stories and also their future goals, you know, because we have some seriously driven students in our building, and I'm sure it is in, in all of your buildings as well, uh, and that want to do really big things and just getting to know, you know, entry requirements and scholarship deadlines and all of, and all of those uh, types of, uh, you know, all of, all of that information is really beneficial as well. Well, Stu, you sound like a busy man. Thank you for taking a little bit of time with us to talk. So uh, we really appreciate you visiting with us today. Hey, thanks for having me, Kyle. And, uh, yeah, yeah, have a great day. Let me know if I can ever help you in the future. Yeah, uh, Stu Keltner, he's a uh, high school counselor, actually at the same high school that our own Luann Fox works at. So thank you very much. We're going to end this episode of No Wrong Answers with a new segment we're trying out. We call it You Could Try This. Teachers often ask each other for advice. They mosey over to a colleague's room between classes or go seek out a friendly face after a rough day and may pose a problem or dilemma. And more often than not, those seeking help might hear the phrase, well, you could try this. So for this segment, we're posing issues, quandaries, questions, or problems that teachers typically have or what we hear our teachers and their colleagues having. And we intend to give our listeners specific, tangible, actionable pieces of advice and saying, you could try this. So... For the maiden spin in this segment, as Luann is ready to go. She's an animal. <laughs> uh, this is our issue for this first time around. Teachers, a colleague comes to you and says, when I ask questions in class, I'm not getting good answers from students. So 
You could try what? Have students write down on a sheet of paper what they think the answer is. Have them trade with an individual. Have them trade again, right, so that they're further away from ownership. And then call on a student randomly. And so what's understood is that that student knows that the student is offering somebody else's answer. The student may not know whose that is at that point. Um, You certainly don't as the teacher, and the class doesn't know at large. And then you can sort of discuss the answer objectively without it being attached to a person. And just a a little variation on that might be having students write down the answer. You probably heard this before, like, you know, smashing it into like a little ball or whatever, throwing it across the room. And then everybody gets to do that kinesthetic activity, like going to pick up like some random smashed up ball and then like reading the answer. And then you can work it from there. Maddie. Well, Kyle, (laughs) you could try reflecting on the thing that you're asking them to think about. A lot of times when I'm not getting good answers, it's because I'm not really offering anything that rich for them to dig into. Um, So you could go to, um, like, offer a phenomena hook. I love doing that for science where, like, you show them a weird picture. Um, For all the teachers out there, you could go to the next generation science standards slash phenomena. Google that. And it'll take you to this really cool website with these insane pictures. And you're like, how is that physically possible in our world? Like, so just what? like, kind of like brain starters. Just yeah. like it hooks them with their, hooks uh-huh. their attention and gets them to the... Yeah, so then I put that up on the smart board and I'm like, what's going on here? And I let them talk. Um, and then the second piece to that is holding a high expectation to what you expect for an answer. So like, if you ask a question, I expect that you're going to restate my question and your answer. Um, and pre-planning what your follow-up questions are going to be. So, like, that's another huge piece. <laughs> Bakari, when I ask questions in class, I'm not getting good answers from students. Do you have anything left after Maddie went? <laughs> they, I think both those responses were really great. I tend to process a little bit differently. So when my colleagues would say that to me, I would ask, well, what kind of questions are you asking? And so I wonder um, what type of questions are we asking? So then I would I, I need to know more. I guess there's not a... Um, I think an easy way to respond to that question without mm-hmm. having a better context. So I think we got to start with what types of questions. And are what we types asking? of questions would you be pushing your students <laughs> or your teachers to ask? Definitely more open-ended questions, um, questions that require critical thinking or require uh, more thought. Because when, if you're asking yes or no questions, um, then you're going to get yes or no answers. And so I think being able to really get students to to start talking. So I think that what I heard Luann and uh, Maddie talk about is giving kids the opportunity to process. So that's what they're writing it down and talking to a peer, I think it's very important because it gives students opportunity to really formulate a whole answer. When you were like, I need to know more context for that question, it made me think of an idea where we could have a Bakari hotline. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm still no, learning. I'm like, I, I I'm like, Bakari ooh, like one of our <laughs> listeners actually I would call in. that. Because then they no, could be no, like, no. and now like the Bakari hotline segment, mm-hmm. like do 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 and then he like I call-ins. That, what if we had live call-ins? That's a, we, we have discussed that before. I know we, that we, that's like a rabbit hole that I just took no, no, us all we, down we, on. We have, but... we have discussed having uh, live call-ins. Well, if this stays in the final cut, audience, <laughs> this could be something you're looking forward to. <laughs> well, that's if you like, if you not. have a problem or a classroom question and need advice, you can email us at nowronganswerspod at gmail.com. Again, that's nowronganswerspod, P-O-D. 
at gmail.com. You can also post a question on our Facebook page or tweet at us. Just search for No Wrong Answers or just call Bukhari directly. <laughs> we, can, we, can, we can post his number on our website. Yes. <laughs> well, stay tuned. We're going to do Kids These Days after the credits. This episode of No Wrong Answers is sponsored by the Kaufman Foundation. No Wrong Answers retains total editorial control in what our teachers say are their personal opinions, which may not reflect the official policies of the schools and districts they work for. You can like us at Facebook, follow us on Twitter, just search for the No Wrong Answers podcast by Fountain City Frequency. Find us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And once you do, subscribe. Leave us a review. It helps. There are no other podcasts like ours giving you a teacherly take on the world. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please subscribe, leave us a review, and keep the conversation going. Now, kids these days. Maddie, what are your kids into? Um, We are into spelling bees. They are oh, like obsessed yeah. with that time every... of year. Yeah. Well, that's my next plan is like we're just into spelling because we're into spelling. Like they're not even aware of like the national spelling bee yet. So that's going to be a, a bomb I'm going to drop next week. I'm going to be like, check out this video. It's gonna, I'm going to show somebody spelling like a really impossible word. But I'll I'll say a word in class and I'll go, um, I don't know, suspicious spelling bee. And then everyone will go, oh, me, 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 me. And then I'll pick somebody and they'll jump up and then they'll say suspicious and spell it and then say suspicious. And then we're like, good job, good job. And then we do a little cheer. It's very fun. We do it at the Smith. So you, do, you just kind of randomly in, in, oh, in yeah. class. Oh, yeah, all day, yeah. at least 10 times. If, oh. I, if by the end of the day, if I haven't done spelling bee at least once, they are like, they're mad. They're like, Miss B, do spelling bee, do spelling bee. It's Maddie's really kids are into spelling bees. Uh, yeah. Luann, what are your kids into? Well, I first learned about this from my uh, from my niece, who's also high school age, because she actually told me I was that. And then I went to my high school students and said, is this a thing that people say now? And then they corroborated that and said that it was so. It? Uh, my niece accused <laughs> me, I think accuses the right verb, um, of being extra. And I'm probably... <laughs> oh, my gosh. So I'm really late. I'm late to the, that game on that because I was like, oh, no. I was kind of like, what the heck? I mean, this was weeks ago, but she's like, oh, my God, you're just so extra. And so when I, you know, asked that, my kids were like, oh, yeah, this, yeah, extra. And well, then the, I'm like, the, do I want to work on being less extra? For our oh listeners, gosh. can you define what, how extra is being used in this context? Um, you, I, for instance, how are you extra? I, just odd and maybe uh, dramatic. Is that help me? You're younger. Like, I, I was <laughs> just extra in my response. Like I like doing the most is how most people would define it. Like you're doing more than necessary. I'm doing okay. I guess so. Right. So uh, I don't. I'm to not max, sure. Maybe. I'm not yeah. sure if I want to be less extra. I'm not really sure how to. Because if I'm less, if I'm less extra, am I basic then? And I don't want to be basic <laughs> no, either. No, you can so, be basic and you can be extra. See, I your basicness can be extra. I yeah, am learning like, oh my gosh, so much, Kyle. You can be many, extra basic. It'd be like yeah, how many do. pumpkin spice lattes do you need? Like that would be the extra version of basic. <laughs> no, too much. Don't anyway. look at me. <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't get what she just said. What? You don't get it either. You get extra. Bakari yeah, get gets extra. Yeah. We get. Bakari's cool. Some days. We'll help you. All right. Mm-hmm. So Luann is extra. I will say I think extra has been used before in the past, oh, but dang. but has not been um, like the teacher was not accused of being extra. It was just a, a thing that kids said. Oh. But now you have, now you are extra. Uh, apparently, it was authentic. Good yeah. job from my niece. So yeah. Uh, Bakari, what are your kids into? So when I was growing up, we used to say that when you had an issue with someone, you had a beef with people. Right. right. Beef is no longer a thing. It's now called funking. 
with people, so you, I'm funking with that girl now. I can't talk to her. Oh, Mr. Cool, you know we funking right now, so don't call her in with me. So it's all about funking. Is there any weirdness with uh, what it sounds like? I know that's what I initially thought, but no, I think is it's just the, the is funk. Is that the origin? I don't think so. No, I don't. I mean, based on the way they use it, because it is they don't use it as if they're like trying to cuss about people. But mm. yeah, it's like it's like it's coming off of literal like oh things are kind of funky right now. Exactly, like they're off. Right, so we're funking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Because I thought when the first time I heard, I was like, "What? You're doing what? Say that again." It was like, <laughs> had to hear that in. I didn't hear that in enough. <laughs> really enunciate. Right. Right. <laughs> Whenever you're funking oh with gosh. somebody, you really want to oh enunciate. Exactly. <laughs> That's like absolutely something I'd be like, "Hey, vice principal, could you come down here and like figure this out for me?" <laughs> well, thanks to our teachers this week: Maddie Burkemper, Luann Fox, Bakari Ukuu. Thanks, as always, to Matt Hodap, who produces the podcast. Thank you to KCUR 89.3, Kansas City Public Radio, where we tape. And remember, kids, don't funk with your teachers. Be nice (laughs) to your teachers. (laughs) 